0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry, And we're just going to get two things out in the open at the <laughs> beginning
1: of this episode.
0: <laughs> Thing number one, uh, Jane Austen was not just a shy spinster who wrote some little books, mostly to amuse herself and her own family. That's a common rumor. It's a common rumor that is false. Yeah. Uh Another common, maybe not rumor, but another perception that is false. She was not like the real-life version of Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice.
1: Yeah, and I think that dovetails on the rumor. Like, people think that it, her books were some sort of personal wish fulfillment scenario.
0: Yeah, or sort of a fictionalization of yeah. her own life. And they really were not. they. <laughs> <laughs> There are some little things that you will read in Jane Austen books that do have a little tie into her own life. But for the most part, these were very, very definitely fictional books from her imagination, not from real things that had happened to her. Um, she is one of our most requested writers. For sure. Lots of people asking us to talk about Jane Austen. So we are going to do that today. Talk about her not at all Jane Austen novel-like life. Um, starting of course at the beginning.
1: Yeah. It was completely unlike any of the heroines in her books. Just not the same.
0: Not at all. As her
1: fictional world.
0: No. She was born on December 16th, 1775 in Steventon, Hampshire. And she was the seventh child and second daughter of George Austin, who was an Anglican rector,
1: and his wife Cassandra. And she was christened the following April 5th, and she spent a little more than a year after that in the care of another family in the village. She was close enough that her parents could visit and for her to be brought to the parsonage to visit as well. And Jane went to live at home again once she was a toddler all of the austin children except for her brother george who had uh some kind of developmental disability followed the same pattern like this was their family practice to yep. send the children away and then bring them back
0: it was an extremely successful practice um all of the austin children lived into adulthood which
1: is not common at the time at not all not
0: common at the time at all um uh, and by all accounts uh, th- they were an exceptionally modest family i mean it's Eight children, in the end, being raised on a rector's salary, which was not a lot of money. But they were exceptionally intelligent and literate. Jane and her siblings and the many, many cousins and friends who would come to visit them and stay for a while were also really creative. And they liked to do things like put on plays together. And they made extensive use of their father's 500-volume library, which is really where Jane cut her teeth on the world of language.
1: And if you've read any novel by Jane Austen or even seen any adaptation for film or television or the screen, you've probably picked up on the theme that being smart and articulate can make up for not inheriting a fortune. And this really was one of the Jane Austen's family's values, Uh having been written down in almost those precise words by her father's grandmother long before Jane was even born.
0: Yeah, but you could make something of yourself even if you didn't inherit tons of money. Uh, when Jane was a child, this is to me where things really diverge. <laughs> if, if you are a fan of Jane Austen, like there are definitely interesting male characters. But the focus is really on the women and the women's lives and the sort of the the other women and the other sisters and the cousins and the moms. And
1: yeah, I think most people think of her. Uh, And in some ways, as like a women's writer. Yeah. Really, she's writing a lot about women, a lot for women. Right. But she grew up in a house full of boys. (laughs) She didn't really have that much exposure to (laughs) huge groups of women. I would even call
0: this upbringing overrun with boys. (laughs) I mean, she had had all of those brothers. You know, she was just her and one other sister. All of these brothers. Uh, Her mother and father ran a boys' school out of their their home to try to, you know, make ends meet. And so, um, you know, Jane and her sister would share a room, and all the other bedrooms were full of all these boys. And her father taught her brothers and all of these other male children. And so she lived in this, like, very rowdy, noisy, boyish environment, and kind of what we would think of as a tomboy kind of sense, Um until she was seven and went away to boarding school with her sister Cassandra. And their cousin named Jane Cooper went to the same school as well. So from the toddler ages that she came back from being with a wet nurse in the village until the age of seven, uh, noisy boy time all over the place in Jane Austen's world. It stresses me out just thinking about it. I kind of love it.
1: Uh, many people do. I I'm not great with the loud children noises. Well, and I
0: <laughs> the thing that it reminds me of on on my mom's side of the family, um, I, I have there were eleven children total in yeah. my generation um and only three of us were girls so kind of a similar proportion ah, yeah um and I like I remember like the boy footsteps thundering up and down the stairs Aww. and uh, I kind of imagined that it was a little bit similar to you growing up with
1: happy memories yeah
0: growing up in this many many boys and and uh boys that she was related to and ones who were brought in to to study at the school
1: <laughs> while I'm like this is
0: I'm like, yay, noisy fun time.
1: Uh, But girls' schools at this point in history tended to be uh, fairly meager and indifferent. And it seems that the school that Jane went to was really better than most. But while there, all three of the girls got sick with what was probably typhus. They did recover, but Jane Cooper's mother uh, caught the, the illness while nursing her back to health. And unfortunately, she ultimately died from it.
0: Now, once they were all well, they all spent another year at home with Jane Cooper often being there as well, since her mother had died. And they eventually all went off to another boarding school, but they only stayed for about a year before coming home again for good and being taught at home.
1: Jane's first and perhaps only love was Thomas Langlois Le Foy, and she met him in 1795 when he was visiting for the holidays. Well, they fell in love and were obvious enough about it that it drew some attention. And soon enough, uh, his kin sent him home again, either to protect Jane from him or pr- to protect him from Jane. Basically, people did not want them together. Uh, it worked out fine for Thomas, who married an heiress. But afterward, Jane really had little in the way of suitors for a very long time.
0: Yeah, she he definitely got the, the longer end of the stick on that whole breakup. yeah. So let's talk about Jane, the grown-up. She was not the only writer in her family. Her mother penned little poems for the children and for the students at the school. Jane's oldest brother, James, was also a writer and a poet. And in January of 1789, he
1: actually started his own magazine,
0: which was called The Loiterer. And it ran for 14 months.
1: And Jane's first written works were satires. Uh, one was called Love and Friendship, which satirized romances, and a historical satire called History of England. When she was uh, around 19 years old, she wrote an epistolary novel, which uh, on the off chance, you don't know what that means. It means a novel that's written as a series of letters. And it was called Eleanor and Marianne, which would later become Sense and Sensibility.
0: Jane's parents stopped teaching in 1796 when Jane was 20. So at this point, the house became a lot quieter. Uh, that year, she started working on First Impressions, which would later become Pride and Prejudice. And about a year later, she started rewriting Eleanor and Marianne, changing it from this series of letters into a more linear narrative. She also wrote her first draft of Northanger Abbey, which was originally called Susan, between 1798 and 1799. So she basically banged out the bulk of three novels in as many years.
1: Super productive.
0: I'm kind of imagining that now that it was not quite so rowdy in the house and she had a little headspace to herself, she was like, let's write some books for real now.
1: Jane's family played a huge part in the process of her writing and her uh, rewriting of these books. In the evenings, she would read her work aloud to Cassandra and her parents, testing out her writing on the family. And she would make notes to herself of what, what worked and what they responded to and what really needed to be revised.
0: Her father liked first impressions so much that he wrote to a publisher to ask how much it would cost him to publish it at the family's expense. Uh, he got this inquiry back almost immediately, marked declined by return of post. And Jane got to work rewriting the book again. I actually, I really like this about Jane's father. Like, yeah, he could have been like, no, this is not a seemly thing for you to be doing. Novels were not really respected as a form of literature at this point in history. And for a woman to be writing novels, there were other women novelists, but it was still kind of a groundbreaking thing. There were yeah. not a lot of uh, published women novelists in particular. This was not a career women aspired to. No, and yeah. people generally thought that poetry and plays were a much higher genre of literature than novels were. Novels were kind of trashy and scandalous. So, um, the fact that he supported
1: her in all of this, I really like. Yeah. It's always uh sort of refreshing and uh, heartwarming when you hear about things like that that kind of step outside the boundaries of society's r- rules in an effort to sort of you know uh, nurse along and nurture somebody's creative spirit.
0: yeah, the Austins oh. pretty much encouraged all their kids to to do what they wanted to do and and to pursue their own path in life. so give cool. them a little bit of an exception
1: Yeah. And in the midst of all of this writing and rewriting, uh, an event happened that didn't happen directly to Jane, but it did really dramatically influence how she lived the rest of her life. Cassandra was engaged to a man named Thomas Fowle. And Tom had gone abroad to try to make enough money to afford to marry. And he and Cassandra were supposed to get married around Easter of 1797, but he had not come home. And the wedding was postponed until spring only for Cassandra to find out many months after the fact that he had actually died of yellow fever while he was away in February.
0: Yeah, he he had already passed away when their wedding was supposed to have transpired, but it took so long for news to get anywhere at this point that, that she didn't know until much later. He did leave her some money in his will, not enough to make her totally independent, but you know, she wasn't completely destitute. And she effectively considered herself to be a widow at this point. She and Jane had always been extremely close, but from here on out, they basically were one another's primary companions.
1: And a couple of years later, there was another dramatic change in Jane's life. Uh, she returned from visiting friends to learn that her parents were moving to Bath and turning over the parsonage to her brother James and his family. So Jane and Cassandra were still mostly dependent on their parents at this point. So that meant that they were going to be moving, too. So... Cassandra destroyed all of the letters that
0: Jane wrote to her about this, and that's something that she she did with basically any letter that Jane wrote her that was extremely personal d- was destroyed. So we can kind of glean from that that Jane was pretty upset uh, by this development. Stevenson was her home, and she had you know lived there for whole, her whole life, and she and uh, and her sister had to kind of watch as its furnishings were divided up among their brothers, the books and the and their father's beloved library were all sold off. Um, the place that had been their home was now their brother's home and not theirs anymore. So it kind of shook the foundations of of Jane's world a little
1: bit. Well, and her new location added to that because Bath was much more urban than Steventon had been. And there were also many more social demands. And Jane's parents had actually met in Bath when they were about her age. So she sort of had this feeling that it was on her to-do list when they moved there to find a husband.
0: Scholars don't completely agree about how this move affected her writing, there are some who use the lack of letters and new manuscripts and new novels written in Bath as evidence that the whole thing was so distressing that Jane just couldn't write. But there are others who insist that she had always been writing and she wouldn't let she wouldn't have let moving stop her. So they theorize more that she was like rewriting uh, was her a existing novels. Yeah, it was a revision period yeah. rather than a new work period. Um, but we don't know for sure. Don't know for sure.
1: And regardless, there's a pretty big gap in her writing output at this point. Yeah, at least in terms of new content, right? We weren't seeing things. We we,
0: we don't have tons. Unlike that three years where she <laughs> she was just she, she's like streaming through it. Here are my three new books. Yeah. Uh, that didn't really happen while she was in Bath. Her biggest life event during the Bath years actually happened back in Hampshire when Jane and Cassandra went to visit their friends, the Big Sisters, in December of eighteen o two. Their brother Harris Big asked Jane to marry him while she was there. They had known each other since they were very young, and Jane accepted his proposal.
1: But their engagement only lasted one night. Uh, it's possible that being in the Bigs' house, where she and Tom LeFroy had spent time in one another's company, sort of stirred up old memories of a more passionate relationship. And whatever the reasons, in the morning, Jane called the engagement off uh, as gently as she could, and she and Cassandra who had planned to stay for several weeks, asked to be taken home immediately. Yeah, that's... I can imagine the awkwardness of, yes, I will marry you, and in the morning going, not so much. Yes. I'm going to go now. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, and uh, as with Tom, this all worked out fine for Harris. He got married to someone else two years later, and they had 10 children uh fortunately, it also does not seem to have soured Jane's relationship with with the rest of the big family they They were still friends after that, even though they had she had had this extremely awkward <laughs> less than twenty four hour engagement to their brother.
1: That is kind of funny uh and her one night engagement to Harris Big seems to have kick started Jane's desire to write again and actually get her work published. After all, if she did not get married, uh she was gonna have to find a way to manage once her parents passed away.
0: Yeah, this was the reality of being a woman at this point. If, if you did not have money, either from your family or from your husband, then you did not have money. That yeah. was how it worked. Uh, Jane's brother, Henry, became her literary agent, and he also got the help of a lawyer named William Seymour. The first book that they turned their eye to was Northanger Abbey, which at the time, as we said earlier, was called Susan. They sold it to a London publisher named Richard Crosby for 10 pounds. And although he advertised the book, he never actually did anything with it.
1: And Jane also started on a new book, one that she never finished and had more direct parallels to her own life than any of her other books. Uh, it was called The Watsons, and it was about four impoverished daughters trying to find husbands before their father died. She planned to kill off the father in the book, but then her own father died in January of 1805 after a brief and sudden illness.
0: One of the saddest parts of that part of the story is that it fell to Jane to write to her brother Frank about their father's death. And after she had written and sent that letter, her sister got another letter from him that revealed that his ship was in Portsmouth and that was not where the first letter had been sent. So Jane had to do that all over again.
1: Oh, kind of makes your heart hurt. It does. Uh, her father had never had much money, but his death meant that Uh, Jane and Cassandra and their mother were basically completely penniless. They had to move into smaller lodgings immediately. James, Henry, and Frank Austin each offered to give them 50 pounds a year to help make ends meet. And Frank, who was the most well-off, had originally offered 100 pounds, but Jane's mother would only accept half of that amount.
0: So at this point, Jane's mother had a little bit of money of her own. Cassandra had uh, inherited a little bit from her deceased fiancé, Jane, more than anyone else, was just completely dependent on other people's generosity for every penny she had. And on top of that, her brothers, while, you know, they they seem to have had good intentions about wanting to look after their mother and their sisters, but they kind of just took for granted that whatever arrangements they made were going to be okay with her. Um, They would make, you know, arrangements for getting the, the women from one place to another without consulting them first, and then Jane would sort of... You're like, but actually, I I am I have plans to be in this place with these people at that time. Um, they, it was just sort of awkward. They, they all of their moving around had to happen at the convenience of other people, um, and so for about a year, they they did they moved around a whole lot, and, and it mainly had to live off the generosity of others.
1: I can imagine that being incredibly stressful. I do not like that idea much at all. Or no, like my independent spirit just like feels all trapped thinking about it. Uh, in 1806, Frank, who was in the Navy, suggested that the Austin ladies actually share a home with his wife-to-be because he would be at sea a lot. And so they lived together in Southampton for about three years.
0: Then in 1809, they made the move to Jane's most famous home. Chawton Cottage. And before we talk about what happened there, let's take a moment for a word from our sponsor. Super. Back to the the home where Jane Austen got most of her work that was published during her lifetime completed and published. Uh Chawton Cottage was part of Edward Austen's estate and he offered it to the Austen ladies when its tenant died. So Jane, Cassandra and their mother all moved there along with a sister-in-law in 1809.
1: And that same year Jane wrote to Richard Crosby the publisher who had bought Susan asking when he might publish it. Uh he said he didn't plan to do anything with it and offered to sell it back to her for 10 pounds which of course she did not have.
0: I have I have an audiobook that is a collection of some of the letters to and from Jane Austen. Uh uh-huh. um, and after reading the response to this letter there's a sound effect of her just like crumpling up the paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, like 10 pounds does not sound like a lot, but she, she did not have the money to buy it back. And, and the publisher was just not going to do anything with it. Um, once they were in this cottage, though, the four women lived a pretty quiet life. Jane and Cassandra shared a bedroom and Jane would get up first and play the piano for a while and then make breakfast for everyone. And she was otherwise exempt from most of the other household duties as long as Martha, the sister-in-law and Cassandra were there to do them. And so she spent most of her time writing.
1: The first book that Henry was able to find a publisher for was Sense and Sensibility. And it was published in 1810 through Military Library Whitehall at Henry's expense. Its author was simply listed as a lady.
0: A lady wrote Sense and Sensibility.
1: A lady wrote it. Uh,
0: It came out at the end of 1811 and its first run had sold out by 1813. Jane made 140 pounds on it, which gave her a little independence. I mean, it was not enough money to totally live off of, but she was no longer 100% dependent on other people. She could at least go buy postage or plan you know, a trip to visit a friend without having to ask other people for money.
1: Yeah. Uh, And Thomas Edgerton, the publisher at Military Library, was ready for another book before the printing sold out. So she sold in Pride and Prejudice for 110 pounds. Her name still did not appear on the book. It was simply printed as being by the author of Sense and Sensibility. And her identity as the author was mostly kept secret outside the immediate family for years. So nobody knew that she was writing these best-selling novels. Nope. Uh, the next book and another sold-out print run
0: was Mansfield Park. And after that came Emma, which she worked on between January 1814 and March 1815. And very gradually, a few people outside the immediate family started to learn that Jane was the person writing all these books.
1: And for reasons that aren't entirely clear, uh, Edgerton was not interested in publishing a second run of Mansfield Park, and he didn't publish Emma. Another publisher, John Murray, published it on commission. So even though she was wildly successful for him and he was probably making a lot of money, it seems like he wasn't really into keeping that rolling.
0: I yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say wildly successful, like, they were definitely successful, but this she was not, she wasn't like, she wasn't writing this century's version of Harry Potter. Right. Like, th- th- things were doing pretty well. They were getting good reviews, but it, it wasn't like people were lining up at the docks to get the first printing off the ship.
1: <sighs> I'm trying to somehow in my brain make that similar to Oprah's Book Club, and it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> um. It was actually a little later before it became like, oh, this is,
0: these are the greatest books and everyone should read them. Um, as she was working on Emma, Jane received word that the Prince Regent, George IV, was a fan of hers. His librarian asked her to come visit Carlton House, which was the Prince Regent's London residence, which she did. He also told her that she might dedicate the next book to the Prince Regent, which she also did. Her, what she actually wrote as the dedication was very simple. What actually wound up on the, you know the, the title page uh-huh. is a lot more elaborate. Yeah. Um so yeah, she she definitely had fans in high
1: high places. And at this point, it seems as though things are going quite well for Jane and the rest of the Austins, but in 1816 the family fell on hard times. The ship that her brother Charles was commanding uh, wrecked in the Mediterranean. He survived, but he did not get another command for a decade. And her brother Frank, an admiral by this time, was on half pay. Both of these reversals of fortune were ultimately because England was finally no longer at war with France. And on top of that, the bank that Jane's brother Henry was running also failed and Henry went bankrupt.
0: Henry and Frank at this point had both still been contributing their 50 pounds a year to kind of the upkeep of their mother and sisters, but now neither of them could afford to do it anymore. And even though Jane was earning money from her books, this did put a big dent in her
1: finances.
0: Henry eventually set out to be ordained, and he was given the curacy at Chawton, which helped a little bit.
1: Jane finally saved up enough money to buy back Northanger Abbey. She also started working on Persuasion, which at the time was called The Elliots. It
0: is my favorite
1: of her books. It
0: is! Um, I did not totally realize until working on this podcast, if you have not read Persuasion. I have not. Um I love it. The the heroine of Persuasion basically has a, a second chance uh to to sort of revive the the first love of her youth when she is a much older woman.
1: Huh. I mean
0: not she's not exceptionally old, but she's a little older than than the heroines of these books often are. Um, and I didn't quite realize that where Jane was at this point in her life was she, she was just about to turn 40. She was uh, it was pretty clear to her that it was unlikely that she was going to have another romance in her life. And um, uh, that made that book a little more poignant for me. Oh. Also, around the time that Jane turned 40, she started to feel kind of vaguely unwell. Since they didn't like Bath, uh, Jane and Cassandra went to Cheltenham to take the waters there. And Jane thought it made her feel a little bit better. But by the time they returned home, she was starting to have pain and fevers.
1: And her letters continue to insist that she was getting better, but in fact, her health declined. Before she became too ill to write, she started on a book she called The Brothers, which she never finished. You can find partial versions of it uh, and versions of it that people have completed on her behalf today under the name of Sanditon.
0: Eventually, at the insistence of her family, Jane was moved to Winchester to be closer to medical care. And from there, on April 27th, 1817, she wrote out a will, leaving everything to Cassandra, except for two 50-pound legacies. One was to her brother, Henry, who had been her literary agent, effectively, for so long. And the other was to a friend, uh, Madame Bijon, who had worked for her cousin, Eliza. Eliza was quite a dramatic character we've talked almost none about in this podcast, but... <laughs> She she could be a subject of her
1: own. She was... Perhaps she will. She was quite larger than life. Uh, on July 17th, after briefly rallying, Jane had some sort of seizure. Uh, afterward, Cassandra sat with her for six hours with her sister's head on a pillow in her lap. And sister-in-law Mary took over for two hours in the middle of the night, with Cassandra returning to her post at about three in the morning. And Jane died uh, approximately an hour later on the morning of the 18th of 1817. A letter written to their niece, Fanny, Cassandra wrote of Jane, She was the son of my life, the gilder of every pleasure, the soother of every sorrow. I had not a thought concealed from her, and it is as if I had lost a part of myself. Their brother,
0: Henry, secured permission for Jane to be buried in the Winchester Cathedral. They had a very early morning funeral so as not to interrupt the church services that would happen later in the day. And while the casket was open, Cassandra cut cut some locks of Jane's hair, some to keep and some to give to others. At least one of these survives until
1: today. Uh, Her obituary reads, Miss Jane Austen, youngest daughter of the late Reverend George Austen, rector of Steventon in the country and authoress of Emma, Mansfield Park, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Her manners were gentle, her affections ardent, her candor was not to be surpassed, and she lived and died as became a humble Christian.
0: The marker for her burial place, on the other hand, makes no mention of the books. Oh, I don't, I don't really say all. Still kind of a secret. Yeah, I mean, this was, that was really the first public announcement of all of these books
1: being Being attributed to her. And her cause of death, uh, we still don't exactly know. For many years, people pointed to Addison's disease because it fits some of the symptoms that she described, uh, when she wrote about how she felt in her letters. But Addison's also caused vomiting and dehydration, which she said nothing about. And she had additional symptoms that are not normally associated with Addison's. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation
0: about exactly what happened. She was only 41 and, uh, the, the that was the youngest age at which any of her siblings passed away. They all, the rest of them, all lived to much older ages than she did. Um, as executrix of the estate, Cassandra had Catherine and the Elliots, which were renamed Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, published together as one book after Jane's death. This volume contained a biographical note that named Jane Austen as their author, and this was the first time that her actual name had appeared on any of her books.
1: In 1869, James Edward, who was one of Jane's nephews, wrote a memoir of Jane Austen. This presents her as sort of a spinster who wrote to amuse herself and her family. So it's really the genesis of that ongoing characterization, which is not
0: so much accurate. No, she definitely, like, she started having a goal of becoming a a published writer and making enough money to have some measure of independence based on her writing. It was not sort of a... I'm going to sit here in the corner and pleasantly write, and maybe it will
1: amuse all of you. And I'm sure he wrote that through a lens of tenderness. Like, he didn't mean to make her seem smaller or less in charge of her life than she was. But it kind of did mess with her public image, historically. Yeah.
0: Well, and as we alluded to earlier, she did make some money off of her books while she was alive, and their print runs generally did sell out. But it was really about a hundred years before they came popular to the way that they are today. Um, her books started to get scholarly attention in the 1920s as as uh you know literary theorists and critics started to recognize them as masterpieces. And that is really when they became the sort of worldwide phenomenon that they are now. Jane, who I know is near and dear to your heart. She's very near and dear to my heart. I love love her quite a lot. And I used this episode as an excuse to buy every Jane Austen thing that I wanted. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, I now have this immense volume of her collected letters that's like it's it's huge. It's it's a, it's as long as a Harry Potter novel, one of the long Harry Potter ones. There you go. Um, I also there are annotated versions of her books, which I love, that have the the story on one page and then on the facing page there are all these notes about what's going on. Oh yeah, which like it makes them twice as long as the books normally are. But there's so much, but like four times as rich. Yeah, yeah. there like there are things where uh, as a modern reader you might not pick up on the fact that this thing this person said just now was a marriage proposal. Um But it was. Yeah. So, yeah, I I bought the, the three of those for the three of her books that I did not already have. I bought two biographies.
1: <laughs> I <I'd, laughs> was a Jane shopping it spree. It was very
0: much a Jane Austen shopping spree at my house. But that's all good stuff. I love her. that you will treasure for years. Yeah, I will. I will definitely will. I have this like giant. I already had sort of a giant collection of Jane Austen stuff. And now
1: you have a Jane Austen situation. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. My own my own book that does not exist in reality as a published thing is is very heavily Jane Austen influenced. So. This was my wish fulfillment episode, basically. Do you also have
1: listener mail for us?
0: Yes, I do. This is from Alec. Alec says, I've recently discovered your lovely podcast and have really been enjoying listening to all the varied topics you guys have talked about. Great work. I did, however, uh, want to make a quick point concerning your recent podcast on the Pueblo Revolts. When discussing the ancient origins of the Pueblo peoples, you use the term Anasazi in your description. I don't blame you for this choice at all, as it is overwhelmingly common to use Anasazi in modern history and archaeology. But more recently, it has become more of a touchy subject. The reason is that Anasazi is actually a Navajo word, taken by Europeans to refer to the ancient people that had built the Pueblos they saw as they came into what is now the American Southwest. They often had Navajo gods when... And when asking them who built those pueblos, it is commonly believed that they replied with the term Anasazi, which translates loosely to enemy of ancestor. As someone who is studying archaeology, I thought I should bring this to your attention as it is really a shame that the term we've adopted for these ancient peoples isn't even from their own dialect. In the archaeological community, many of us have taken to referring them as ancestral Pueblo, which isn't exactly perfect, but is certainly better than referring to them as the enemies of our ancestors. Hopefully, this doesn't just seem like political correctness for the sake of political correctness to you, and you'll keep it in mind for future discussions. Keep up the great work, Alec. I had no idea. Me either. Um, I had no idea. And then when I went to... Because, like, you know, I, I want to innately trust everything our our listeners send to us but occasionally we get corrections that are themselves not correct yeah Um. and so i went to try to confirm this and it took some doing to to find that i mean i'm sure we will get notes from people who are like you could have read that at wikipedia but we try to do our resources from primary sources as much as possible yeah um and so it yeah it took a little doing to find out that that really is the case. I had no idea.
1: And now, as a personal side note, I have this moment of laughter because many moons ago, I used to uh, manage a hair salon. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point, I don't know if this company is still around, but there was a hair care line called Anasazi.
0: Yeah. That's- <laughs> Well, now
1: I'm like that is weird. Yeah.
0: And I can't remember who I was talking to. I was talking to somebody and they were like, "Oh yeah, I found that out. I found that out when I was reading Neil Gaiman's American Gods." And I was like, "I've read that book and that did not yeah, stick in my head." Me either. And I um, I've also read it. I also want to have a little note about quote political correctness. Yeah. I kind of want anybody who is going to say something about political correctness substitute the words being respectful. <laughs> Because that's really all that political correctness is. We get a lot of flack sometimes for, quote, trying to be political, politically correct. What we are trying to be is respectful of other people. Yeah. Uh, that's, like, part of the goal of this whole podcast. So What? Yeah. Let's um, insult other people. <laughs> do, yeah, do not feel the need to apologize if there is something that you feel like is motivated from political correctness. Because what that really, really boils down to is... Not being disrespectful of other people.
1: Yeah, and like disregarding important historical elements that would inform our knowledge. Yeah,
0: it would be awesome if we had a word that was neither ancestral pueblos, since that's like a Spanish word that was made to describe yeah. the houses that people lived in, and also not Anasazi, since that is the a, a Navajo word. like That does
1: not mean what... It should mean nope. in the way it has been adopted.
0: Nope. So thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. I had no idea. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash in history and on Twitter at missed in history. Our Tumblr is missed in and our Pinterest is at pinterest.com slash mist in history. Uh, If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we have talked about today, or more specifically, what Jane Austen wrote about extensively as a core concept in all of her writing, you can come to our website, put the word marriage in the search bar, and you will find Betrothed Through the Centuries, a timeline of marriage. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
1: This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by lynda.com. You can learn it at lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try lynda.com free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash historystuff.